Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hello, I'm Jim Shudo filling in for Fareed Sakaria, who was on a very well-deserved vacation this week. Fareed did some great interviews before he went away, and we're going to have those for you later in this hour. In the meantime, let me welcome all of our viewers here in the U.S. and around the world. Today on the program, I'll have a conversation with former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz about the state of the Iran nuclear talks. But first, this week marked six months of Russia's brutal war in Ukraine. The true cost of this war, difficult to measure. There are the military costs, the billions of dollars spent, the cities destroyed and the territory seized. The human toll as well, the lives lost, the refugees forced from their homes, the disruption to daily life for Ukrainians living in the shadow of Putin's war. Not to mention the spike in food and energy costs beyond the theater of war. And these costs all continue to mount. This week, the U.S. pledged nearly $3 billion in additional security aid to Ukraine. This comes as Putin decreed an increase in the size of the Russian military as well. After half a year of war, what would it take to bring this conflict to a close? I want to speak now to John Kirby, who is the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. Admiral Kirby, thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Great to be with you, Jim. Uh, first, let's begin w with the state of the war, if we can, a half year in. The U.S. has given its biggest military assistance package so far at $3 billion. And you increasingly hear from Ukrainian officials not just about holding ground, not just about defending territory, but we're seeing them attack behind Russian lines in Crimea and even talk about gaining back territory that had been previously taken by Russia. In the U.S. view, has the momentum of this conflict fundamentally changed to Ukraine's favor? I think what you're seeing, Jim, is a, is a very kinetic fight uh, along this entire front, from the Donbass all the way down to the to the south of Ukraine near Kherson. Uh, and the Ukrainian and Russian forces continue to actually trade territory back and forth. But what you said at the outset is so right. I mean, even from the very first weeks of this war, the Ukrainians have not been satisfied to simply defend territory, but to strike behind Russian lines to try to win back some of that territory that the, the Russians have, have gained. And the fight, particularly in the Donbass, is a one of miles. Sometimes it's block by block uh, mm. where Russian forces will take a, a certain part of a city and Ukrainian forces will take it back. Now, the Ukrainians have said, President Zelensky has said that they're, they're going to continue to go on the offense where and when they can. Uh, and they certainly have shown a, a proclivity and, and certainly a, a capability to do that, armed, of course, with all the support they're getting from the United mm -hmm. States, as well as so many other nations particularly those HIMARS weapon systems. Putin certainly not backing down. In fact, he announced this week, as you know, an increase in the overall size of the Russian military by more than 100,000 forces. Is there any indication that the U.S. is observing that, that Russia, uh, that, that Putin is making any preparations to pull back or to head to the negotiating table? Well, we've seen no indications of either, sadly, Jim. Uh, mm -hmm. In fact, quite the contrary. Everything that Mr. Putin is doing 
indicates to us that he intends to, con to continue to prosecute this war. You talked about him trying to bolster, bolster the size of the army. He's, he's desperate for manpower because he's losing a lot of manpower in this fight, both killed and wounded. And morale and command and control, unit cohesion is still a problem for Mr. Putin. So he is making steps to try to make sure that he's got the resources and the assets available to, to continue to fight this war for the long term. And he has said publicly, in fact, in just the recent few days, the Kremlin has said they have no intention of sitting down in good faith with President Zelensky. Uh, you, you, the U.S., and others have been paying attention to fighting around the Zaporizhia nuclear, nuclear plant in Ukraine, of course, Europe's largest. And yesterday, Ukraine said Russia renewed shelling around that plant. Uh, tell me, what is the U.S. view? Is there still a genuine danger of a nuclear accident as a result of this fighting so close to it? Yes, we're deeply concerned about that. Look, a, a nuclear power plant is not uh, should never be considered a site for combat in an armed conflict. Uh, and we believe that uh, maintaining a, a controlled shutdown process would be the safest course for all. Look, a, a reactor needs a reliable and redundant power source. And as we saw earlier this week, Jim, they had to take it off the grid because the power source off-site uh, had a fire going on based mm. on a fire caused yeah. by some of the shelling back and forth. So without a reliable and redundant power source uh, that, that, that can be maintained inside the plant, again, we believe a maintained controlled status would yeah. be the uh, appropriate step. And we obviously continue to encourage uh, uh, the Russians to make sure they allow IAEA inspectors mm -hmm. in uh, so they can mm -hmm. see what the operation of the plant actually looks like. Yeah, the plant has never been shut down uh, by, by a war. I, I want to move on to a different topic because in the last 24 hours, two U.S. warships transited the Taiwan Strait. Yeah. Uh, announcement from the Seventh Fleet. What message exactly were these ships sending to China? Very clear message, very consistent message, Jim. That is that the United States Navy, the United States military will sail, fly, and operate wherever international law permits us to do so. This Taiwan Strait transit between these two cruisers, this was planned uh, long ago. In fact, about two to three weeks ago, I myself said publicly uh, that uh, while Speaker Pelosi was on the ground in Taiwan, that we would be conducting a Taiwan Strait transit in the next couple of weeks. This is that transit, very consistent with our One China policy, very consistent with our uh, desire to make sure that we can continue to to work towards a free and open Indo-Pacific. This is consistent with that mm -hmm. policy. I want to move on to another topic here, and that is the Iran ongoing Iran nuclear talks. Uh, we, we've seen Iran pull back on some of their initial demands here. Is the U.S., are the U.S. and Iran closer to a nuclear agreement than they were a week or two ago? Is it moving in, the, in, in a positive direction in your view? We are certainly closer today than we were about two weeks ago, mm -hmm. thanks to Iran being willing uh, to concede on a couple of major issues. Uh, and so we're still working our way through this. There are still gaps that remain between uh, all sides here. So we're not there yet. Uh, we're going to continue to work at this. We did make a response back to the EU. Uh, that is now uh, being looked at uh, by the EU and by Iran. Uh, we're, uh, we're obviously hopeful for a positive outcome here because no problem in the Middle East, none, mm -hmm. is easier to solve with a nuclear armed Iran. The president still believes diplomacy and, and return to the deal is the best possible outcome, and we're going to keep working on that. Afghanistan, it's been a year since the U.S. left Afghanistan. Currently, the U.S. Uh, has frozen some $7 billion in Afghan central bank uh, reserves. The Biden administration, to, to our knowledge, considering splitting those reserves, uh, in effect, uh, some going to Afghan humanitarian relief, other to 9-11, the families of 9-11 victims here. Will the administration release some of those reserves to Afghanistan? 
Yeah, we don't have a decision on that right now, Jim. I mean, we're still working through uh, through the process there. I would tell you the United States remains the, the largest humanitarian contributor to uh, to Afghanistan through nonprofit organizations, through NGOs, obviously not through uh, the Taliban regime, but we continue to look for ways mm-hmm. uh, to, to alleviate the humanitarian suffering in Afghanistan, and we'll do that through international partners. Briefly before we go, it's a year out, as we mentioned, 96% of special immigrant visas or SIV uh, Afghans still remain inside the country. Uh, Will the U.S. make a commitment to get them out of the country? Even though the military mission is over, Jim, the, the mission to continue to, to get our Afghan allies and partners uh, out of the country uh, and to safety remains. Uh, the State Department is working on this very, very hard. They have taken a, a series of steps uh, to make the process a little bit faster and more efficient. They're working through that. But I can tell you that we are 100 percent committed uh, to getting our Afghan allies and partners out of that country. John Kirby, we appreciate you joining the program this morning. Yes, sir. Good to be with you. When we come back, more on Russia's dangerous occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in Ukraine, which, of course, as we mentioned, has sparked fears of a nuclear disaster. I'm going to speak to a nuclear physicist, former energy secretary, about it and about those attempts to revive the Iran nuclear deal. That's when we come back. President Zelensky said this week that Europe faced a possible, quote, radiation disaster when the Russian-occupied nuclear plant in Zaporizhia was disconnected from Ukraine's power grid. It has since been reconnected, but fears are mounting over continued fighting and shelling around that complex. Meanwhile, Washington and Tehran edge closer to reviving the Iran nuclear agreement. The State Department said Wednesday the U.S. had sent its response to the European Union's latest proposal to try to save that deal. Tehran confirmed it was reviewing Washington's response now. Let's speak now to former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz to discuss it all. Secretary Moniz, nuclear physicist and was one of the architects of the original Iran deal. Sir, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Jim. I I spoke to John Kirby just a couple minutes ago. He he said that the U.S., Iran and its partners are indeed closer to a deal today than they were a week or two ago. Uh, You've been deeply involved in the negotiations going back to 2015. Is that your view? Do you believe that a deal can be resurrected here? Yes, it does seem that uh, we are closer. Uh, I'm not sure what the odds are. They may still be, say, 50-50. But uh, uh, there's no no doubt in my view that uh, even though we have lost uh, basically five years uh, uh, since the Obama administration, uh, five valuable years, I might say, uh, mainly due to President Trump's uh, very unwise decision uh, to, uh, to leave the deal in 2018, uh, that even at this time, uh, we and our friends mm-hmm. uh, and partners in the Middle East, I believe, would be far better off getting back into the agreement. In fact, okay. if I could just add uh, to that, Jim, briefly, uh, I would say that uh, first, in terms of the nuclear restrictions, it's clear that the lost time uh, has uh, been used effectively by Iran to increase their, uh, their nuclear capacity. Uh, but we also should remember that the single most important restriction was the one to a small amount of very low enriched right. uranium. And that will be in place until 2031, first. Second, uh, I've been very consistent since 2015 in saying that even more important than the nuclear restrictions are the extraordinary verification measures, the tools we've put in the hands of the international inspectors, getting those back 
uh, in place, some yeah. of which go forever, uh, in my view, is the most important uh, uh, aspect of getting back into yeah. the agreement. John Kerry described that during the negotiations as verify, but verify as a way to, to describe it. I wonder, they have amassed many hundreds of kilograms of enriched uranium. If a deal is reached, how quickly and, and crucially, how reliably would Iran's breakout period to a nuclear weapon be lengthened? Actually, Jim, they've now uh, accumulated uh, tons of mm -hmm. enriched uranium, including uranium enriched to as much as 60 percent, uh, which is very, very close uh, to getting to the weapon-grade uh, material that one would, one would need. Um, in terms of the breakout time, defined narrowly as the time it would take to bring together, uh, going all out, the material for a nuclear weapon, uh, the deal had that at a year or more. Uh, now we are down to weeks. Uh, a restoration of the agreement and full implementation, of course, by Iran, would put that, put that back up uh, to, let's just say, many, many months, uh, okay. which would be an enormous, uh, enormous improvement. You, as you know, Iran has many other ways of, of uh, exerting aggression on its partners around the world. Uh, we, we've seen details about a plot to, to assassinate John Bolton just in recent weeks and months. What is your answer to those who understandably say this will give many billions of dollars in sanctions relief to a state sponsor of terrorism? Well, first of all, that's the same argument that was used uh, in 2015. Uh, and the fundamental issue is, uh, does one or does one not, and of course President Obama decided to move forward, uh, to uh, reach an agreement understanding uh, that they would have additional resources. Now in the meantime, the so-called maximum pressure campaign uh, that uh, President Trump uh, put in place in 2018, uh, withdrawing from the deal, mm -hmm. had no material effect. Uh, on their uh, regional adventures, shall we say. In yeah. fact, I think it's easy to argue uh, that the regional issues uh, intensified. Uh, they, they did not go down. Funding does not appear to be, frankly, uh, the key variable in terms of their ability to do uh, regional mischief. Uh, okay. So they do have a lot of economic needs, and, and I do want to emphasize their economic uh, uh, constraints right now are not simply due to the sanctions, uh, from the United States, uh, uh, for example, but also due to issues like climate change uh, and drought, uh, resultant drought, uh, which are affecting them quite, quite badly. Okay. Uh, Russia, of course, was a crucial player in the 2015 deal, including taking the bulk of that highly enriched uranium out of the country. It's uncertain what role will Russia play in this. Can other partners, particularly the UK and France, who have widely developed nuclear programs, pick up that slack and, and take this enriched uranium out of, out of Iran? Well, first of all, Jim, let me just emphasize that uh, in 2015, uh, 2016, uh, with the agreement, Iran did not have high enriched uranium. It has it now because of Trump's decision uh, in 2018. Uh, you are absolutely correct that Russia uh, was instrumental uh, in being, being able to implement uh, the agreement, uh, taking all of that low-enriched uranium uh, out of Russia, uh, and in, a in, in, in addition, some uh, scrap that uh, was, was yep. difficult to deal with. Uh, if Russia uh, now decides not to cooperate in that way, then I think it would have to come to France and the UK in particular, uh, who have large nuclear establishments, 
to pick up that role. Uh, whether Russia would uh, cooperate or not is unclear. Uh, first of all, I will note that in 2015, when we reached the agreement, uh, we already had a very, very difficult time with Russia because uh, they had uh, gone into Crimea, for example, uh, in 2014 uh, already. Yeah. Uh, and by 2016, when the deal was implemented, they had started military action in Syria. So mm -hmm. we had a very, very difficult time, but Russia nevertheless cooperated. Today, uh, an, another unfortunate consequence of the 2018 decision was to push Iran more uh, into the arms, if you like, of both Russia yeah. and China. That might be the reason why Russia could still cooperate in helping Iran implement the agreement if we, if we uh, go back into it. That'd be, that'd be an interesting dynamic, no question. Uh, for, former Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, mm -hmm. uh, deeply involved with these, with these talks from the beginning. Thanks so much for taking the time this morning. Thank you. Coming up next on GPS, with climate change so evident this summer around the world, it is imperative that we change our ways. One idea, car-free cities. Are they possible? Yes. In fact, some cities are well on their way already. Fareed will be back after the break with a fascinating conversation to help understand this trend. Consider this. According to the New York Times, if you were to take all the land in Manhattan dedicated to cars, garages, roads, streetside parking, you would have an area nearly four times the size of Central Park. That's on an island where less than a quarter of households own cars, and the land able to be developed is valued at more than $1.7 trillion. Also, where taxis crawl across Midtown, where children have to cross busy lanes of traffic to get to school, and where even moderate curbs on private car congestion have often been met with stiff public resistance. But this is not how it has to be. Many cities in Europe are flirting with banning private cars from the roads, and many more have at least partial bans in place. There is the obvious reason to combat climate change, but car-free cities are also leading to a better quality of life. Without cars, there's less smell, less noise, more space to walk, to dine outdoors, to play. Jeanette Sadiq Khan has long envisioned a future with fewer cars. She served as New York City's Transportation Commissioner from 2007 to 2013. Today, she advises cities as a principal at Bloomberg Associates. Jeanette, welcome. First, tell me how much of this is happening because of the pandemic and what is, the, what is the effect that the pandemic had on cities and urban planning? Thanks, Farid. It's great to be with you. Um, you know, we have learned a lot during the pandemic about what cities do well and not so well. And some of it's troubling and polarizing. But one thing that really emerged as a secret weapon for cities was their streets. In city after city, from Milan to London, Paris, San Francisco, New York City, when offices and stores closed, you know, and people felt like they were trapped inside, cities opened their streets. And we couldn't cure the coronavirus, but we could do something with our empty streets. And hundreds of cities around the world turned their roadways into shared spaces where people could walk and jog and run errands. And, you know, you take a look at a city like Paris, you know, Mayor Hidalgo, converted the Rue de Rivoli into a car-free corridor during the height of the pandemic. And then last year, 
building on that, announced that she was going to have a $300 million plan to remake the fabled Champs-Élysées and turn it into this extraordinary garden of pedestrian space. And along the way, she reclaimed half of the city's 140,000 parking spaces. And so it's so interesting because people talk about the future of transportation as driverless cars or drones or flying taxis. And the most inspiring trends that we've seen, you know, before and during and after the pandemic has been the rise of something called the car-free city, you know, which is actually sort of a misnomer because these aren't exactly car-free cities. But what we're seeing is kind of people-first districts in cities. So they're still streets and sidewalks and police cars and fire trucks and buses and delivery trucks and people driving. But what's changed is the design of our streets. They can be used for more than just moving people from point A to point B as fast as possible, as they were designed to like move people quickly from the suburbs to downtown. So paint the picture of the future for us. Well, I think what we need to do is be more like neighbors. We need to live together. It's not anti-car. It's really pro-choice and options. You know, we have to make spaces where people want to be and not just drive through. And so the strategies that, that cities are and mayors around the world are embracing are ways to make it possible for people to get around easier on bike, on foot, on bus, and creating spaces that people want to be. And this has turned into just not like crunchy granola type of strategies. These are actually economic uh, economic competitiveness strategies because people and companies can move anywhere and they want to in this day and age and they want to move to places where it's enjoyable, where you can stop at a bench. You know, the, so many cities have reclaimed their parking spaces and created benches and spaces for people to walk and sit and, you know, have a cafe con leche. A place like Oslo has tried this too. And, and for them, the, part of the issue, the impetus was uh, climate change, right? It was. You know, Oslo has been dramatically reducing its parking in its downtown. And Basically, they, it's virtually no parking since uh, 2019. Um, they've completely turned down the volume of traffic to the speed of life. You, know, you can still get deliveries, but the remaining traffic is calmer and it's much less uh, invasive. And partly as a result of this, Oslo in 2019 became the first major global capital to achieve zero pedestrian deaths and zero cycling deaths. And shops recorded increases in visitors and city after city what we've seen is that more foot traffic is better for business and you're seeing that all over the place and i think what's so interesting is some of these cities you know people always point to copenhagen and amsterdam and they are seen as these pedestrian meccas as if this they've always been this way and yet they started reclaiming their streets in you know the 1970s and so it took it was over time that they turned into these people first places it wasn't just like this magic wand that came in and suddenly the traffic was gone i think what they've shown is that you can design a city for people rather than cars and that's really the future of cities do you think it will work in houston or in seoul you know these big modern cities that have just Lots of highways, lots of roads, lots of cars, lots of uh, skyscrapers. You know, it's really interesting because the chief principle of urban design for the last century has been, you know, moving cars as fast as possible from point A to point B. And you see that in the design of cities like Houston. You know, from a bird's eye view, you've just got these towers surrounded by this sea of, of parking lots. 
Um, but you're seeing even cities like Houston that are creating these extensive bike networks that are creating plazas that are looking to build in much more transit. And so they understand that that's the future of sustainable mobility and that it's not, you're not going to improve the city by building more and more car lanes and accommodating growth with more and more cars. That's, you know, that's like, you know, looking to solve obesity by loosening your belt. It just doesn't work. Jeanette, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thanks so much, Reed. Next on GPS, jobs in the U.S. have come roaring back since the early pandemic. These are real jobs for real human beings. But COVID was supposed to be the beginning of the so-called automation apocalypse. We will explore what happened when we come back. The United States has now recovered all the jobs lost during the pandemic, with the unemployment rate down to 3.5% in July. It's good but confusing news, given all the fears that the pandemic would accelerate automation. To help us understand, I talked to Callum Williams, senior economics writer for The Economist. He recently wrote a terrific article on this very subject. Callum Williams, pleasure to have you on. Thank you very much. So tell me, first of all, with, with the pandemic, everyone said the digital economy has triumphed. You know, we're seeing all this massive digitization. We're seeing people do things uh, using the computers that they were never able to do. And this heralded the beginning of artificial intelligence and all that kind of thing. Um, and in that model, everyone assumed that you will get more and more computers and robots doing things that human beings were, were doing. Um, what does the employment data over the last two years tell us about that story that we were sold? Okay, so there's two parts of that. The first part is, you know, was there spending on computers and software and automation and all that kind of stuff? That is definitely yes. If you look at the data, spending by firms on software and that kind of thing is just going nuts. So that's definitely true. And that happened for a bunch of reasons. The biggest one that people are working from home, but other reasons also. But then the second one, which is really your question is, what was the impact of all that spending on uh, employment? And back in 2020 and, and, and last year, and even today, um, you have lots of economists saying, this is the moment when the robots are going to take over because all this spending on robots will mean that There'll be loads of jobs that people don't need to do anymore. And so you're going to have high employment and people won't be able to find work. Now, where we actually are in 2022 is that we don't have a job shortage. We have a worker shortage. There's a huge worker shortage across the rich world. Wages are growing very strongly and inflation is taking off. So basically, the story couldn't be more wrong. And what do you think we got wrong? Like what's what's wrong in that in that uh in that thing, because computers are growing, you know, it is clear that the stuff they can do lots of things humans can do from, uh, you know, accounting to you do see the software replacing what human beings used to do. What did we get wrong? It really underestimates the importance of humans, human labor in the provision of particularly services. So, for instance, there's a, you know, a really obvious example is like a coffee shop. Now, technology is sufficiently advanced such that we could have entirely robotic coffee shops. That is theoretically entirely possible. And indeed, there are some shops across the world which are done entirely by robots. Uh, and they serve you coffee and it's kind of OK and it works. 
But that hasn't happened. Uh, in fact, coffee shops are employing more people than ever. And I think this is basically because when you go into a coffee shop, part of the fun, part of the experience, part of the product that you're buying is the whole interaction with someone both behind the tail, but also other people that are working in the coffee shops. I guess the other big thing, of course, is that what robots enable people to do, and this is true for literally hundreds of years, is they do enable people to kind of pass off the really boring routine stuff, which can then be done by machines. And it allows them more time to do the more human stuff, the more difficult stuff that robots can't do at the moment. So that's the really interesting part to me, because that's where software really comes in. So when you look at law or accounting, uh, what, what people have often pointed out is a lot of it is very routine, very, you know, you're searching what they call discovery in law. You're searching for words and phrases and patterns. Um, and clearly computers can do that. But what it seems like that's ha what's, what's happening is the computer is not replacing the human being. The, the, the computer is redirecting the human being to do other things. Is that fair? So jobs are composed of many, many different tasks. You know, when you are a writer or an investor or a journalist or whatever, you're doing a bunch of different things. And robots can do some of those things, but they can't do all of those things. And so I think what we're seeing now is a recognition that it's not about destroying jobs or not destroying jobs. It's about changing jobs. And the effect that this seems to have, um, although the evidence is still quite preliminary, is that this actually, this process works to increase the overall level of employment in the economy rather than decrease it. Look at the countries that have the most robots. That's basically Japan, South Korea, and Singapore. Now, those three countries also have extremely low rates of unemployment and have done for a long time. So what about the quality of the jobs? Because, you know, David Orter has done, the MIT economist has done some work on this, and it does seem that you're, number, you're right, the jobs increase. But hasn't what economists would call hasn't labor lost pricing power, um, by which I mean the kind of jobs you have, jobs at a coffee shop, baristas or whatever it is, um, they, they, it's very hard to, to get sustained rising wages and move up the scale and build a middle class life, et cetera, et cetera. If you look at the U.S., look at the average job in the U.S., which is kind of a helpful way of thinking about it. And there's a survey by Gallup that comes out quite frequently, and it asks people, like, basically, how much do you like your job? Like, how engaged are you? Um, and it's basically at its highest level of all time. So it's kind of, it's a bit tricky, I think, to make the narrative uh, on the face of it that robots have had a massive impact on, on job quality. I think the same is true of wages. If you look at some of the new researches coming out, what actually happens when um, the robots come along is that people can be more productive. And basically, when you become more productive, i.e. you can get more done in a day, that does eventually feed into higher wages. That is basically why America is so rich now, because it's so productive. Cal, this is terrific. Um, thank you. Uh, you've, ta you've, you've taken on the new Luddites uh, and explained it very well. Thanks, Fareed. Next on GPS, on the eve of the 25th anniversary of Princess Diana's death, I'll talk to the great chronicler of British royal life, Tina Brown, about the state of the House of Windsor today. Back in a moment. Wednesday will mark 25 years since Princess Diana died after a car crash in a Paris tunnel. Her boys, who walked solemnly behind the casket a quarter century ago, are all grown up now. Of course, Prince William is preparing to be a king someday, and Harry has stepped back from the royal life, shall we say. 
Meanwhile, Prince Charles is still waiting in the wings as the Queen remains on the throne at 96 years old. Tina Brown has a fascinating book out on all of it. The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. And she joins me now. So let me first start by asking you, Diana's death, I remember it vividly, and this feeling that almost there was a kind of break in the British body politic psyche. There was an eruption of emotion. What do you think that was all about? It was a remarkable moment, as you say, in the British psyche. Uh, it was a moment when the connection that Diana had forged, you know, her combination of royal uh, charisma, if you like, and humanitarian warmth, the way that she reached out to people and shared her pain, which was an absolutely new thing for any royal to do, as we know. It was the moment when you saw for the first time, really, the stiff upper lip of the English crumble, you know, tremble. And suddenly, you know, people from all walks of life, all age groups were, were weeping, weeping in the streets of London and indeed all over the world. And yet, you know, there is something that, that Britons and, and people around the world seem to admire about that stiff upper lip when I think about the Queen, who has played this remarkable role of really never revealing anything. That's right. I mean, the Queen never explained, never complained. And of course, Diana did depart from that. And in the case of the Queen, of course, we know nothing about what she thinks about anything. Nothing. 70 years on the throne, not a clue what she thinks. She's inscrutable and she has actually perfected the art of allowing anyone to project what they want on her. We can all look at her and think she's upset, she's amused, she's pleased. I mean, you know, the famous boot face at the weddings, which always makes me laugh, and everyone else at weddings is crying or looking, you know, oh, it's so sweet. She is 100% inscrutable, and that is the way she has always been. But it must take incredible discipline to do that, because as you say, not only do we not know anything about what she thinks about anything, uh, and these are big state matters, personalities, we never will. There will never be a, a memoir written by, by this woman who has been at the center of international life. And it's kind of, it's so different from our modern age, where even people who seem inscrutable like a president, you know, within five years, you're going to get a memoir that tells you everything. With her, there's never going to be anything. Well, she has had this remarkable self-discipline. And she always has, actually. I mean, you know, right from her earliest girlhood, the Queen was always noted to be, you know, remarkably composed, remarkably serious-minded. She had absorbed the whole concept of duty and of reserve from her father, King George VI, and has never really erred from it at all. And, of course, what was hard for the Queen when Diana died was suddenly she was required to be something else. She had always, all her life, it followed this, this, this creed of composure and reserve, and all of a sudden she was being asked to emote. She said the British people all of a sudden wanted her to be crying, wanted her to say, I'm so upset about the death of my daughter. That's not what the Queen can do, and that was really the only time that she put a foot wrong, in a sense, with her people, because that's what they wanted at that particular moment. With this backdrop, what do you think of what the Sussexes have done, you know, Harry and Meghan? <laughs> Well, they've gone in completely the other direction. Now they're all about emotion all the time, you know. And, of course, the Oprah interview stunned and, just, you know, and, and absolutely floored the, the royal family. Uh, in a way, it was almost 
more puzzling and, and traumatic for them than Diana's famous interview you know, with Martin Bashir because they'd almost come to expect from Diana these kind of uh, news bombs and, 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 and revealing of herself by that time. But in this case, I think the, the puzzle one was like, why? Why are they, why are they doing this? Um, and I think that it actually... I think there was a possibility for them to build a bridge, you know, with the family after they left. But the Oprah interview seemed like a hand grenade into the House of Windsor that they still haven't really recovered from. And, and it seemed to me it was sort of like the, the, there was a fundamental break with the, with the business model, if you will, of the royal family. As, as I've understood it, you know, you, if you're a member of the British royal family, you get enormous respect, dignity, worldwide publicity, acclaim. But... You behave in a certain way and you don't monetize the brand. That that really is frowned upon. And what Harriet seemed almost like he suddenly realized, wait a minute, I, why do I have to live off the scraps that, that you know Charles gives me? I can do a Netflix deal. <laughs> right. And in many ways, I mean, a lot of people that I spoke to almost felt it was always going to happen that, that Harry would leave. He just couldn't figure out a way to do it. And uh, what Meghan gave him, of course, was a way out. And where does Prince Charles presumably soon to become king? (laughs) Where does he fit into all this? Well, Charles has been the man who waited, you know, in the anteroom of his destiny for the last, you know, 50 years and has waited and waited and waited. So he's felt tremendous frustration in his own life, but he's hung on. And now he gl- glimpses it. And you saw when he had to open uh, a Parliament recently, when the Queen was too ill to do, well, too unwell to do so. It was almost like a melancholy occasion. It was almost like here he is, still not King, kind of almost looking forlornly at the crown <laughs> on, a, on a cushion. Opening Parliament once again for his mother, it was like, when is he going to be able to step into his destiny? Will he still, you know, have any years left? So he's waiting patiently. I actually think he will be a pretty good transitional monarch. It won't be a long reign, but, you know, he will be a good convening king, I think, you know. And, and it does feel, though, that this issue in an, in the age, in an age we live in of the super wealth, the, the, the issue of money... Uh, you know, somehow still sneaks its way around with the royal family because at the end of the day, other than the queen and her state wealth, they're not actually that well off. And so you see Andrew doing a lot of what he did, hobnobbing with rich people. You see Prince Charles trying to fundraise from Middle Eastern guys and taking cash in bags. It's a very vexatious issue for them all. They are more and more exposed to what money could bring them. It's like it's like a mirage, you know, and actually it does sort of lead them astray in a sense because they have to figure out other ways to get it. And usually that is something that gets them into trouble. It's like mixing with the wrong people or doing some kind of deal that when it comes public, it's not attractive in any way. And of course, with Andrew, it totally you know, sent him off the reservation and ended up you know, in the thralls of Jeffrey Epstein. So it is actually a vexatious matter. And I think you're going to see in William and Kate's era, I feel very much that the younger children are going to be said, OK, Go, go forth, you know, you know, God be with you. Don't feel you have to be royal in any way. It's for the heir. If the heir doesn't want to do it, we have to ask the next one. But I don't think that you're going to have this imprisonment, essentially, of the younger royals, where actually their fate is to be behaved as perfectly as the monarch, but at the same time have none of the, frankly, the perks or the income or the, you know, the status.
This is such a, such a great book, such a great conversation. I could go on forever, but maybe um, the next book will be uh, <laughs> Charles, the man who would be king. <laughs> Tina Brown, pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Farid. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.